History, less, uh, lesson, lecture number um, 125, Rabbi Blywise. We're going to talk about the modern Israel by way of its wars and, its, and, and, and the terrorism that, w- that it would know, which is often, if you were in a secular history class of the modern era, is what you would focus on. Sadly, that's th- that defines the reality. It's why the army is so central to the culture of the Israelis and why serving in the army in terms of Israel's um, economy tends to be very helpful in networking. If you don't know people, if you don't have what they call protexia, you don't have that kind of interconnectedness into the society that people usually get through the army, uh, it's hard to advance professionally in almost any major field, I mean within the larger Israeli society, um, and in general, the, it's known in Israel that the people, for example, who they served, in, if they're in combat or whatever they served with in, arm, in the army, become friends for life. It's a bonding experience. It makes sense. A lot of the time, people endured great hardships. So the people you go through those hardships with are those, you know, like, likely, likely uh, you'll form lifelong bonds and so on. So it's quite central to the experience, clearly not for the religious sector. But for the uh, I, I, for the yeshivish sector, uh, but for the dati and for the chiloni sector, it's a defining central feature. And I'm not going to focus only on their perspective because I'm also fo- focusing on Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael existentially. What we're up against in the immediate present, of course, when Nochemis Gog and Magog and all the rest unfolds, it might take on a very different look. But it's still helpful to be knowledgeable about what's going on right now. Go ahead. Well, I, I have a question on that. Please. Uh, because, like, when, when like, it already applies to, like, a job, on the application to say we're the army, like, if they serve in the army it, it, Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, depending on the profession who, they, who they're going to work with, that's a given. That's a given. They, 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 if it doesn't, the I, I don't know. I can't answer depending on the depression on the profession. But it becomes known. Where did you serve? Who did you know? Often you even you, you don't even have a foot in the door without that initial protexia, that 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 you know having having that connection to, uh, to give you the right the right kind of assistance. Um, I mean, honestly, you know the the Haredim anyway lack a lot of the um, academic backgrounds and, and a lot of the raw skills to be part of many many areas of the job sector. Um, it's what the previous government sought to, well, in their view, fix because they feel that it's all about economics, all about making a living, and, and they feel one of the great um, um, burdens on the Israeli society is, is, is the Haredi sector that doesn't work, which, um, among other things, is, is, is a distortion. Many, many in the Haredi world do indeed work hard, and to, say, to, to kind of deny that, to say they're all sitting and learning, is, is, uh, is, not, is not accurate, it's not fair, but on the other hand, we don't value work like they value work. We understand that you have to make a parnasa and got to support a family. And if your wife can do that in the modern day, that's seen as ideal. If that will permit you to sit and learn, but okay. So there's a balancing act, and we and we, we revere our talmidei chachamim and our uh, the, the people who are sitting, the abrechim who are sitting, and usually mysterious nefesh because they're not me- they're they're enduring poverty. But uh, the, the, yeah, go ahead. And I met a uh, politician from the. Uh, like the Dati party. Mm-hmm. What's called today Habayit Ayudi, yeah. the Jewish home. Right. Yeah. And, and he was explaining that was like his main uh, question to get the Haredim into the workforce. Yeah. They're very into this because they, as we described, um, not yesterday, but a little bit at the beginning of yesterday and then the day before, the, the, this year before, they're ideologically opposed to the whole Haredi lifestyle. 
and on some level feel threatened by it. You should be a, a professional like me, is their attitude. So that's not only are there Knesset members in the, in the National Religious Party of Ayyad Hayudi, even though it's not technically defined as National Religious, but effectively that's what it is, the, um, that's not only their, uh, you know, one of their passions, because they feel that emotionally they're threatened by the, all these Kolel guys sitting and learning Torah. Uh, they, feel un, they feel unjustified in what they're doing since they're so highly professional. Um, and they also represent a large constituency. A lot of Dati want to um, break apart the Haredi way of life and to, and to get them into the workforce overwhelmingly. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's part of what's uh, at the core of the conflict in modern society. We're, we, we've, we've shifted a bit off topic. Let me get us back um, to talk about, we, we've, I've asserted this idea before with regards to war and peace in this part of the world. These are perceptions, um, but arguably since the 1880s, there's been one constant war with intermittent uh, times of a lull in the fighting, but as much as we have, we've had peace treaties and truces, we've never had peace, per se. In the most extreme example, I guess probably the closest thing to peace we have is with Jordan, but it, uh, like Egypt, it's something of a cold peace that with a change of regime could, could uh, reverse within, within a few hours. Um, we last left off in terms of following this strand of history of, of Israel's security situation, talking about the, um, the Six-Day War, um, with the uh, the following the Six Day War, uh, the rise of the PLO, the Palestinian Liber Lib uh, Liberation Organization under Yasser Arafat, I haven't really talked about the development of the PLO as a force about Black September in 1970 when um, when the King of Jordan went in. Oh, Daniel uh, too. When the when the King of Jordan went in and when Palestinian. Uh, um, nationals in Jordan were, were rising up against the government and the government's policy, he did what's usually very effective if you're a tyrant. He just went in and had a bloodbath and killed a bunch of them. That's why, hence, hence, hence Black September. If the Israelis were to try such a trick, of course, they'd be, uh, they'd be hung out to dry in the International Court of Opinion. Um, but King Hussein certainly had no problem doing that. Was, was, uh, was that the name of the terrorist group that attacked the... Okay. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm skipping, I'm skipping, you could go into this topic in endless detail. I'm trying to give you highlights. Again, we, we should be knowledgeable and conversant in major history. Um, for six years, the Arab world licked their collective wounds. Uh, more than anything, more than casualties, what hurt most was the, um, was the injury done to their pride, to their honor, which is something held very uh, dear in, in Arab culture. And on October 6, 1973, which of course in the real date corresponds to Yom Kippur, Asara B'Tishrei uh, 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 um, in the same year. So um, Egypt and Syria this time around, it was just Egypt and Syria, the other Arab nations were not uh, centrally involved, um, led a surprise attack on the holy day. Uh, the Egyptian forces um, barreling into the Sinai Desert that they had lost six years earlier, the Syrians into the Golan Heights that they had lost six years earlier. Uh, lest you think though it was, uh, I mean this was a surprise attack, Israel was literally caught, not totally surprised, um, there were those in the government, um, uh, Dado Elazar among others, who actually warned that such an attack could happen, it could be imminent. Um, most of the top brass denied it. Golda Meir was a prime minister who was probably 
um, by her own account, too old at that point to be a responsible prime minister. Um, the uh, defense minister, Moshe Dayan, that they were, they just denied it. And you can do that easily in power. Um, we forget, it's so easy to study history and to assume what idiots, what fools, didn't they know it was coming? But that's easier to say with perfect historical hindsight. When you're right there, it's very hard to know what the next chess move is supposed to be. And uh, they didn't anticipate, they were still sitting tall and high, uh, basking in the glory still of their victory six years earlier. They wouldn't they would do anything to us. Well, apparently they would and they did. On Yom Kippur, they attacked. Um, it wasn't just Egypt and, and, uh, and Syria. Um, they, were, uh, they were buttressed from behind the scenes by the USSR, by the former Soviet Union, who supplied a massive supply uh, to, to uh, supplies, war supplies and, and, and assistance to both the Egyptians and the Syrians. The um, Israelis quickly responded. I mean, I know stories of men who were literally, I mean, this is the Nazi world, they were literally uh, the Shaliyah Tzibor, they were the Chazan before the Amud, and suddenly they were called out in their talis, and they ran to get their army fatigues to go fight uh, in the middle of Yom Kippur, and um, it was quite terrifying for all those who were here and around and, and remember it. I was not, but, uh, but people described that this really felt like um, one of those existential threats. The um, because the U.S. was behind Israel, the fighting that took place um, a little over a month, the fighting, excuse me, wrong, a little under a month, um, almost led to a confrontation of these two mass, these two uh, nuclear superpowers. Uh, so when you think, you know, what happens in tiny little Eretz Israel has a ripple effect and has a tendency to impact the world. Little old Jewish people constantly on the front page of the New York Times, usually not for the best, and, uh, but we do have a disproportionate impact in world history, as we've always seen, um, almost leading to uh, World War III. Baruch Hashem, that was averted. After about three days, the first three days were the most, uh, were the scariest for the, from, from the uh, vantage point of Eretz Yisrael. Um, people really thought, you know, any minute now, it was, that was it. About three days into the fighting, um, Israel turned things around. Kaddish um, Baruch will turn things around in favor of the Israelis. How's that for a self-correction? Um, and they managed to repulse both fronts, but the fighting kept going for weeks. Uh, heavy casualties on both sides. Um, not one of those... It's interesting when you go around with the tour guides and they like to walk you through the footsteps of the battles. This is one of those wars where they're not so proud to walk you through the footsteps. Not, not, these, they were really... Um, uh, it, it was it was it was it was not a not a not a proud kind of a war. Not that any war is, but this this one is one that the Israelis would prefer rather to forget. The um, King Assad eventually the Israelis wound up doing with Hashem's help so extraordinarily well. He wound up complaining to the United Nations to quote what he to, to, to halt what he what he what he called the Israeli aggression before the Jews were about to take Damascus, the capital of Syria. Um, this, of course, you'll be reminded, in a war that he started, the Jews were on the defensive and he had to call out the Jews for their aggression. Um, the ironies of history. Uh, a ceasefire was finally negotiated um, 19, 19 days after the fighting broke out on October 25th. And, and, and we, uh, that's when we developed uh, atomic weapons there, supposedly? That was certainly a catalyst, certainly, certainly a major factor. In, in, in the development of the, of the nuclear uh, plant in Demona that doesn't exist. 
The uh, Anwar, Anwar Sadat admitted in his memoirs that the purpose of the war was not to destroy Israel. The purpose was to save face. They were fighting because of their deep humiliation in the Six Day War, and this was meant to say, this was meant to make a comment that you know, Egypt and Syria are strong. After the fact, they didn't realize it at the time, and had they thought otherwise, they probably could have wiped out Israel. Meaning, had they planned more ambitiously, they, they didn't realize that they would take Israel so by surprise, so, so off guard. Um, the Israelis agreed to that with that sentiment, and it was extremely humbling to the uh, you know heretofore invincible Israeli, the macho Israeli, and suddenly the six day the, the Yom Kippur War was a major uh, major embarrassment. Um, in fact, five years later, what was initiated as the Camp David the Camp David Accords, um, which eventually led to the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. I'm using the term Israel. I know some people have an allergy to that because, of course, it's Eretz Israel. But I am referring to the secular state. And for argument's sake, let's we'll use the term Israel. Uh, famously, Anwar Sadat, at tremendous self-risk, uh, flew on a plane, got to Israel, spoke to the Knesset, made many um, overtures, goodwill, peace, peace gestures, overtures. Uh, and um, arguably, the Camp David Accords may never have been signed by Egypt had they not saved face in 1973. So that you kind of have to see the bigger picture, which is obviously one of the meta, meta themes of what we've been doing all year. You can't really understand what goes on in any given um, incident, isolated episode in history, without seeing the bigger picture and what led to it. If it wasn't for the Six Day War, there'd be no 73 War. If it wasn't for the 73 War, there would be no peace treaties with Egypt. And everything, everything is a link in a, in a, in a chain. The, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of question about what to do after the war. <coughs> the Americans pressured the Israelis to um, make more gestures, overtures of peace to their, uh, to their enemies. Um, in particular, the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, um, pushed the Prime Minister, Golda Meir. He said, you should offer the Golan Heights as a goodwill gesture to the to the uh, Syrians. Um, now, this is part of the problem of a government, any government, but certainly Israel's government. In government, you sit in a building down usually in Jerusalem. What they did with the prime minister, they um, cl cleverly brought her up to the Golan Heights and gave her a tour of all of Syria's former shooting outposts where she saw with her own mind's eye, she could see just how clear you could view almost all of the mountains of Israel and, and see exactly where the Syrians played target practice on the farmers down in the valley below. And she was persuaded that maybe the Golan Heights was a strategic asset that Israel couldn't so quickly uh, give up. And uh, they, did not, they did not cave into the pressure uh, of, the, of the Americans to give, to give the Golan Heights back. That would come back again later on. Um, when he was prime minister in, in, uh, the year, in 1999, the year 2000, Ehud Barak, who was the left wing, uh, what was the Labor Party or the equivalent of the Labor Party, he was elected on a platform that he was going to make a very hasty series of peace agreements. And he was prepared, among other things, with some restrictions to offer the entire Golan Heights to Syria, a move that was uh, deeply opposed by much of the country. And he never had to do that. The Syrians, as it turned out, were never serious. 
King Assad was on his deathbed anyway, uh, but they never really were serious. But um, it's something that comes up periodically, and it's not out of the question. It could come up again with the Syrians. I mean, today Syrians. There's so many settlers there, Well, you just remove them. Is the thinking. The people in government don't really feel that they have to answer to people like settlers. Um, uh, okay. Um, this is, we're getting deep into politics, political area. Um, I, I admire the uh, mysterious nefesh of the settlers. If you see what they've done in the Golan Heights, if you see any of their promotional material, what they've built up since the Six Day War, it's impressive. They've built where the Syrians did virtually nothing with that area. The, um, the, the Jews, a, a relatively small population of, of, of communities of Jews, um, have really built up, uh, they've built fields, vineyards, um, wine factories, industries, they, they, they built beautiful homes and really developed the area beautifully. And uh, okay, um, I, my, my father is right-wing politically and when we used to have our, our, uh, our quarterly journal, The Jewish Spectator, so um, he, I, I was editing it and he was writing the Lido editorial and he wrote a piece on this subject um, uh, arguing against, uh, arguing that the move to give the Golan Heights to Syria was, uh, was extremely naive and explaining why. And I had an idea for a cover story that went over decently well. Um, we put on the cover a bottle of Golan wine, which is the name of one of the famous, actually celebrated prize-winning uh, wineries in, in the world. Uh, in the, it's located in the Golan Heights. Beautiful bottle, right, Golan Heights. And then on the, on the bottle is a big bow and a nice gift sign that says, uh, to Syria with love, as it were, like giving this freebie, this gift of the beautiful winery to Syria, which had done nothing but be belligerent in order to get it. In the end, that didn't happen, and who knows what will be. Uh, these, these and other issues um, are, still, are still on the table as far as uh, Israel's concerned in the modern day. The, um, seven, the, the, the 1973 Yom Kippur War was a major blow to the morale of Israel. Um, as we said, they were overly confident after 1967. Um, Rav Gottlieb, Rav David Gottlieb uh, Shlita says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu Dafka, he felt, made the wars only six years apart, he felt as a direct blow to Israeli arrogance. He, he, uh, his whole, his whole, he develops this idea. Um, he's certainly on to something. 1975, the UN adopts Resolution 3379 that formally, you know this one, equates Zionism with racism. It's official in the UN's book that if you're a Zionist, if you're pro uh, the secular state of Israel, that means you are de facto a racist. Um, these are modern PC terms that can be manipulated at will, depending on what your political inclinations are. Uh, I mean, they're nonsensical if you look at them from a distance. How do these pass? Like, they just by a majority. In a democracy, you can, you can get anybody to vote. And if you have a, you have a, uh, listen, think about how many Muslim states there are in the UN. Of course, they're lined up against Israel, whatever they can do. And, 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 and it's a clever resolution because the world increasingly becoming liberal and using these, uh, these terms like racism, which most people can stand and be conscious and line up against racism. It's one of the reasons why the, well, why, why apartheid South, South Africa fell because it simply didn't pass the, uh, the public opinion test in the international court. So again, if Zionism is racism, then the Israelis are in trouble. And this, of course, is a tool that's used, it's a propaganda tool that's used frequently till today against the Jews. Uh, new episode. I'm giving you highlights of the, uh, of the situation in the modern state over the years. June 27th, 1976. Anybody want to finish my sentence? 
Where were you? June 27, 1976. Do you know what, what the end of the sentence is, Daniel? I don't know what happened. The PFLP, Palestinian Front for Liberation of Palestine, together with uh, an organization called the German Revolutionaries, uh, in this case, uh, actively, it was a man and a woman, um, got on board an Air France flight um, oh, that was heading, that was en route from Athens uh, to Paris. It would actually started in Tel Aviv. It was, it was, it was, it had refueled in Athens. When the flight resumed its flight from Athens to Paris, uh, the terrorists hijacked the Air France flight and instead flew it to a thunderbolt. Many movies have been made about it. It's certainly a cinematic topic. Um, anybody know where it was flown to? Entebbe. Entebbe in Uganda. That's one of the many movies that were made. Yeah, many of the, one of the many movies. Right. The current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother, uh, who, was a, who was a young man, but some semi-celebrated. He went to my camp. He went to your camp. Well, that's why. Uh, semi-celebrated figure. He was a poet and an up-and-coming rising figure in the uh, intelligentsia, the, the liberal elite. Uh, he led the, the, the raid. Let me give you a synopsis of the story. It Only is an exciting story, but I, I'm not just doing this to tell you exciting stories. I also want to reflect, and I'm going to quote Rav Shach. Because I want, see, with all of these, we get so swept up in the zeitgeist, in the, in the public opinion, and the popularization of the stories that we forget, you know, there is a Torah perspective on all of these uh, events and all these issues. So uh, the, the raw details of what happened, the hijackers um, were supported by the local government, by Idi Amin Dada, cruel tyrant. Um, in Uganda, remember Uganda was, uh, was with the Uganda plan with Theodore Herzl, that may have been awesome. the land of Israel once upon a time. Madagascar was a candidate, so was uh, Argentina, and far away, Siberia, many other candidates. In any case, um, in, in, in the scheme of what had happened, the, 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 the hostages were held. The demand was the release of, um, of, of an extremely large number of terrorists. Israel had a formal policy of not negotiating with terrorists. Now, this, is, this was a major... Uh, international incident, what are they going to do? They're under tremendous pressure. They're not feeling much love from any of their allies. Uh, what are the Israelis going to do? Uh, at what point the hijackers separated Jews from non-Jews. In fact, on board, one of the um, captives was, uh, was an Auschwitz survivor who showed the tattoo number on his arm to one of his captors, who remember two of the terrorists were Germans. Uh, and of course, the, 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 you can't mistake the, you know, the, the recollection of what we call. I'm sure that's a cultural reference that went right over my head. Oh, fine. Okay. There were several of them. Which one was Raiden and Teddy? Charles Bronson? Or I don't know. Who, who? There was one. The Israelis made one. They made their own. That was probably oh, the best yeah, of them. Operation Thunderbolt. Oh, another one? I just know all the ones again in the 70s. It, I don't go to movies. Was, it was literally just Karada Yoin. Uh, I see. It's very cinematic. Fine. All right, so you know the story effectively. So in any case, uh, then, I'll, then I'll really be brief here. I'll try to be brief. Um, the, uh, the idea of selectia, going through selection after Auschwitz is uh, horrif horrifying to the modern mind. They released most of the non-Jews. Um, to his credit, the plane captain and the entire crew refused to leave and they stayed behind. Um, they were uh, criticized. At home, and so finally, I mean, they were they're they're treated in Israel, of course, like heroes. 
but uh, the, the, the captain and crew were very courageous. In any case, over 100 hostages were kept behind. They, the terrorists threatened to kill all of them unless they, the long list of Arab prisoners was released. It was Air France? It was Air France. So they were French? They were French, indeed. Um, I think if you, I don't know how they film it, but if you study the raw data, uh, again, I don't know how you see what happened without seeing the Hashkocha uh, Pratis. Uh, I think probably the greatest, I don't know if this is emphasized, I don't know if you even know this from the movie, but probably the greatest piece of Ashkocha Pratis, at least the most tangible, was that the airport terminal in Entebbe, I mean, talk about, I mean, we would say, what a coincidence, right? But we call, what they call coincidences, we call divine providence. What do you call it? Coincidence, my, I forget Coincidence, in other words, right, it's all from Akadish Baruch so guess who built the airport terminal? It would happen to be years before Uganda had hired Solel Bona, an Israeli contra- uh, building operation, and they, back in Israel, still had the plans to the whole layout of the terminal. What are the odds, people? Think about it. And of course, the hijackers had no idea. They had never, they, who knew that the Solel Bona were the ones who built it? There was no, there no Hebrew writing on the uh, packaging. The packaging had long been peeled off. In any case, um, that greatly, you know, with all of the Israelis love to take credit for their own brilliance, uh, and that, of course, must come through in the movie, wow, I, I want to be an Israeli commando, uh, kind of a thing, but, um, but really, I mean, it's Kaddish Baruch who's the commando, Hashem Ishmael Chama, we say in Shira Sayam, and he, he, he gave them the, 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 probably the, the speed and efficiency of the rescue operation, which I'll describe in a moment, uh, was greatly facilitated because they know exactly where they were going. And indeed, on July 4th, in the summer of 1976, I remember this too. This, I was 10 years old. I do remember this unfolding. On July 4th at 11 p.m., uh, I'm skipping a lot of the drama, a lot of the excitement, but four Israeli transport planes landed. They needed to refuel in the only um, non-hostile area uh, country in between Israel and Uganda, which was Kenya. Uh, they had refueled, and they quietly landed. When they landed, indeed, like probably was made in the movies, I don't remember the movies, it's many years, but um, they, the, the exact same model of uh, Mercedes-Benz that Ida Mindada drives drove out of the, uh, of the planes, um, and they had dark sunglasses, and they, 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 all the soldiers were dressed to be like the Ugandan army. Um, they, uh, they drove to the terminals accompanied by Land Rovers, is exactly what, what uh, Idi means, um, you know, fl- fleet would have looked like. Um, within 53 minutes, they went in. Uh, I mean, when they got in the terminal, indeed, they really did say, it's okay, we're Israelis. Can you imagine the emotions of the, uh, of the hostages at that moment? They probably didn't believe it, and then, and then they just... Right, I mean, it's a stunning, stunning achievement. I, I mean, I think you study history. If you really do see a Kaddish Baruch Hu's hands and you're brought to tears, you should be brought to tears of Kaddish Baruch Hu's kindness. The tears are from, I can't believe it. This is not humanly possible that you're here. And don't take credit, macho Israelis. You didn't do this either. Um, so the, uh, within 53 minutes, they'd killed all the terrorists. They destroyed Ugandans, uh, they'd, the, many fighter planes of the Ugandans. They'd killed somewhere between, the numbers are disputed till today, 33 and 45 Ugandan soldiers. Um, when they got in, they told, they told the Israelis, come, it's time to go home. Four of the, hostage, four of the hostages died, some in the shooting, um, and the only, um, the only officer, uh, the only um, Israeli that came in to rescue them who died, uh, Yoni Netanyahu himself was shot, and he did die. He was the leader. 
he, he was shot and he died. He's buried in Har Herzl. Um, the other, the, the other story, a terribly tragic story, and all interconnected in history. I think I mentioned this. I did mention this to us um, several weeks ago. There was an older woman by the name of Dora Bloch, who was actually she had British citizenship, but she was was she ever Israeli? Because she was the um, daughter, granddaughter. Do I have this here? Ooh, I really shouldn't be blocking on this. I think she's the daughter of Josef Feinstein. Now, Josef Feinstein was one of the founders. He was the one, he was one of the founders of Rishon LeZion. He was the one who was in the room when Rav um, Shmuel Molivert had a private audience with the Baron Rothschild and persuaded him to fund the Mosheva project. Feels like so many years ago, but this, but this, uh, they're all interconnected. She was an old lady in 1976. So, um, so the same Josef Feinberg was actually had a tragic life, was kicked out of Rishon LeZion. But this is his daughter, his cousin, we also talked about, was Avshalom Feinberg, was the, um, one of the heroic members of the Neely, the, um, the secret spy organization of the Jews who had the cover of, of being botanists, actually were botanists, um, who he and Yosef Lashansky had schlepped across the Sinai Desert, were attacked by Bedouin, and they were killed. And remember, he was the one who, Avshalom Feinberg, her uncle, her uncle Avshalom was killed, and they found the tree and reburied him, reinterred him in our, our, our Herzl. And I talked about how I tell that story in our Herzl, and then I come around and I, and I talk, I stand by Yoni Netanyahu's cabinet at the bottom, and I, I talk about this story in Nora Blach, uh, and I say how interconnected all Jews are whatever your persuasions and ideologies and all the rest, um, we're all just one big family. There are really, you know, only 18 Jews in the world and the rest they do with mirrors. The, uh, well, Dora Bloch had had, um, had heart problems and at the time of the Israeli um, rescue mission, the, um, she was in the hospital, so she was not there to be rescued and with utter um, cruelty, Amin had her, she was 75 years old, she was dragged from her hospital bed um, doctors and nurses who tried to intervene were also killed. I tried to save this old lady, so they, they killed the doctors and nurses, uh, and they, they threw her body outside. The, the Israelis had to wait for years before they recovered the, the remains of her body. Um, they also, um, Idi Amin also went in and attacked, um, uh, went in and, and, and killed hundreds of Kenyans living in Uganda. People from Kenya. Kenyans who were living in Uganda. No, because they helped the Israelis by letting the planes refuel. Remember that detail in the story? Yeah. So he didn't forgive anybody. So he had to kill the, the nationals because of what their state allowed. That was, the, that was his thinking. So he killed hundreds of them in retaliation for the embarrassment. The uh, attack was criticized, meaning it's made into movies, and of course Israelis love to glorify themselves. It, but. First of all, America was lukewarm about the whole proceeding. The Secretary of State Kissinger criticized Israel. They said, um, you used um, United States equipment. I mean, talk about, you know, small-minded. Okay, yeah, they used United States equipment. Uh, that was his take on it. Most Western countries, in the end, did defend Israel's actions. We shouldn't negotiate with terrorists is the general principle. I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing or a bad they thing. They changed that policy. Too. Yeah, they've also changed. They apparently really do negotiate with terrorists anyway. At the time, it seemed that Israel was heroic. Um, the Secretary General of the UN was a former Nazi by the name of Kurt Waldheim, the Prime Minister of Austria, uh, eventually. Um, he criticized what he called the serious violation of the national sovereignty of a UN mem member, and indeed most communist states, and certainly most Arab states, criticize Israel. 
Um, certainly, the, if we look at this from the point of view of what Rav Gottlieb indicated, from the point of view of Israeli arrogance, which sometimes knows no bounds, uh, the Israelis certainly love to celebrate themselves over this event. Um, Rav Shach had a different a a reaction. He felt that the decision to invade was a deep, terrible mistake. If they had asked him a Shiloh, of course they wouldn't, but if they would have asked the Gedolim and gotten his Das Torah, his opinion was, do not go in. I, Rav Shach, but look, they won, so it must have been the right decision. Isn't that the simple-minded way that most people think nowadays? Results. If I see the results, it must be true. It's vindicating me. I must have been right. It must be that Hashem was on my side. No, says Rav Shach. He said, Api halacha, to go into Uganda was a foolish, um, arrogant decision. You risk the lives of the hostages and the soldiers. He says, the fact that Akadosh Baruch Hu indeed had rahmanus, he had compassion, and he brings about success, doesn't sanction the act retroactively. Right? Any more, he says, he brings the Gemara, the Gemara, he says, you're not allowed to walk under a shaky wall, a kosal ra'ua. He says, that's usr. So even though if you walk under a shaky wall and you come out unscathed, you still did an iser. They did an usr, an iser. He said in the end, the only chokhmah to do what halacha determines and the Kaddish Baruch Hu runs the world. The fact that the Kaddish Baruch Hu has seemingly endless amounts of chesed for, this, uh, for, for what goes on in, in, the, in the state and the, the behest of the state, um, that's, you know, that's what he does. It doesn't, doesn't vindicate our actions. Um, I mentioned again the Camp David Accords. Uh, there were yeah, back and forth. Um, there was, it was the time was right in Egypt. I'm not going into a whole analysis. Um, Amr Sadat certainly stuck his neck out. This is a, after the Likud revolution, the year before 1977, for the first time in the young country's history, the Labour Party lost the elections and were trounced, really. It was uh, the, the Menachem Begin and his Likud party were on top, and people say because of his right-wing, unmistakably white right-wing credentials, he uniquely was in a position to make peace. You realize, when it comes to any kind of peace treaty, it's not just today. Back in 1978-1979, when the option of making peace with Egypt in exchange for a huge, uh, huge tract of territory, the whole Sinai Peninsula, uh, look at the map, Sinai is much larger than all of Eretz Israel. Um, most right-wingers opposed. Had there been a liberal, left-leaning, or even center, centrist uh, prime minister, it would have been much harder for him to put over. But if his name is Menachem Begin, and he has the right-wing credentials, but he's the one making peace, somehow, maybe begrudgingly, the rest of the people on the right, and certainly in the center and the left, will, will follow behind, will follow in line. So, and, and he did it, he pulled it off. And in 1979, they, the first official peace treaty with any of Israel's enemies was signed. Um, Israel indeed returned the entire Sinai Peninsula, uh, which is not classic historical Eretz Israel. Har Sinai is down there somewhere. We don't know where. What they call Har Sinai uh, with um, what's the, uh, the foot of it is Santa Katarina Monastery uh, is a guess. It's a Christian guess, they guess all the time. No reason that that should be the place. Um, I remember going there and um, just outside the monastery, there was on the wall a um, big old bush with Christmas lights going through it. And the bottom the sign said, Moses is burning bush. Anything for tourism. And I have a picture of it happened to be when I was there of a group of um, Japanese tourists who were there all busily photographing Moses is burning bush. So I couldn't resist and I took a picture of the tourists 
taking pictures of Moses' burning bush, and the whole thing's captured, and I can't find the picture anyway, but I would love it. Anyway, uh, anyway, we don't know where Harsinai is. The Sinai Peninsula is not, not uh, I mean, it's certainly strategically helpful, but they gave that back to Egypt. They set a precedent by trading land for peace, which has its own problems and setbacks. Uh, it also was, it was and remains a very valuable um, asset in terms of tourism. Uh, resorts all along the beach areas, Sharm el-Sheikh, many, many other uh, uh, very valuable areas. It also has, it had the only oil wells that Israel ever enjoyed. For six, for, excuse me, for uh, not quite 18 years, Israel had oil wells, and when they gave the Sinai back to Egypt, they lost their only oil wells. They found offline, offshore oil, that's different than an oil well, but you're right, you're right, they found something. Uh, still, I'm, I'm just pointing out, it was a major uh, sacrifice to give the entire Sinai to Egypt. Um, they traded it for a piece of paper, a treaty, for what's called popularly a cold piece, um, with periodic border attacks. Uh, we, re we recognize that at any moment, Islam, Egypt is one of the many fragile uh, countries in the, in the entire Arab world after the Arab Spring of three years ago. The, uh, that, that at any moment the regime could, could change and um, elements that are hostile to Israel could tear up the piece of paper. Um, but okay, a peace was made. Um, Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin both received the Nobel Peace Prize as if that's some kind of an accomplishment. People seem to like uh, prizes in the world today. That must mean something if a bunch of people randomly decide to call you a hero. The, um, for his uh, efforts in all of the above, Amr Sadat was rewarded as well by being assassinated by his countrymen in 1982. They would never forgive him for, uh, for doing that. In fact, Egypt was a rogue state because of this for, uh, for um, 10 years. It took the Arab League. They were suspended officially from the Arab League until 1989. And then eventually they came back. But uh, it was not, it was, uh, it was some people call courageous. Some people said uh, uh, to make peace with the Israeli enemy. 1981, uh, I don't know if you know this, this is less known. Israel leads a surprise airstrike on a nuclear reactor secretly being developed in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Uh, it was under construction. 11 people were killed at the, at the reactor. Um, at the time, are you familiar with this? It's significant, I'll tell you why. At the time, the world condemned Israel's action. How dare you fly into another foreign country? And uh, it's an act of belligerence, act of war. Uh, the United States criticized Israel. The, U the UN, of course, typically and predictably issued its own anti-Israel resolutions. Um, actually, three Israelis had died, not during the attack, but training in accidents, training for the mission. It was a very dangerous mission. Um, the general consensus, when you ask people in the know about this, a lot of people refer to this um, with some bravado and, and, and self-congratulations as being a great moment in Israel's, um, in Israel's military history because people say by, down, by, by destroying this nuclear reactor, they kept nuclear power out of Saddam Hussein's hands. Who knows what he would have done, what he was capable of doing with that, and they, they assert and speculate that maybe Israel's here today because of that preemptive strike. You can hear that logic, okay? And that's, that's in many ways, that's the common wisdom on the subject. Um, as with everything else, I'm questioning it. I'm not saying it's wrong, and there may be elements of truth, but you know with these kinds of issues, 
it, it's all speculation. It's impossible to know Kaddish Baruch Hu's plans. It's impossible to really know what saves Am Yisrael from day to day, minute by minute, other than a Kaddish Baruch Hu's Ashkacha. And the opposite argument can also be made. I, you can consider this. Um, on the one hand, right, uh, they claim, the Iraqis claim that the reactor was not belligerent, it was meant for peaceful research, yeah, right? Uh, um, uh, right? Many people say that in the 1991 Persian Gulf War, Israel was spared annihilation, destruction, because they didn't have uh, nuclear power. Um, many people, many years later, the Americans didn't come around until Bill Clinton, finally Bill Clinton agreed that the attack kept Saddam Hussein from developing uh, you know, nuclear power. Um, but you know, the other side is like this. All the Arab states paid attention. They saw little Israel acting obnoxiously, and of course they hated the Jewish state, but now they hated it with a vengeance, and arguably, um, this one act galvanized countries like Iraq, um, and especially Iran and many other Arab states, to develop full-fledged nuclear weapons that, um, that they're seeking now to destroy, to use to destroy Israel. Um, and if you talk to most military experts today, with all the problems that, that Israel suffers on every front, uh, especially with the local neighbors, the greatest, the, the sense that the greatest existential threat, you know, I mean, the, the threat to their very existence uh, that exists today is with Iran. Iran was galvanized by this event in 1980, 1981. Um, for its part, Iraq actually began seeking compensation in international courts. They're suing Israel in international courts. They started in 2009 for the attack that took place in 1981. And they may win. So we may not have heard the last of this. 1982, Israel invades southern Lebanon. You familiar with this? Okay, this you should know too. I'm really giving you a highlight. This, I, I mean, today is very much so you're not a complete ignoramus when it comes to modern politics. You can discuss Israel and its affairs uh, with intelligence to anybody. Uh, these are just basics. I'm skipping a lot too, you should be aware. Uh, Israel invades southern Lebanon. Um, it, what the catalyst, what, what led to that, a terrorist tried to assassinate Israel's British ambassador. And that one thing led to the other as these things, uh, these things go around. And Israel invades Lebanon, um, leading to what's called the First Lebanese War. That was a mess, and it's another one of these episodes that Israel prefers to forget or to cover up, but it happened, and it's significant. The goal, Israel's goal, was uh, Lebanon at the time in the early 1980s was the, was the home, the host of the PLO, and much of the terrorist activity was planned, if not actually executed, from, from uh, southern Lebanon. Um, so the goal was to get rid of the PLO and to remove the Syrian influence in southern Lebanon, um, the PLO had no problem. They, re they relocated to Tripoli, right? So they, they, they found other places to go. Um, and the Israelis became embroiled in, I called it a mess before. There was local fighting. See, Lebanon's a mess. It's a hodgepodge of different factions, Christian, phalanges. And, I mean, you have, you have, and you have, you have Muslim influence. You have the Hezbollah uh, later on would develop. And um, there's effectively 18 months of low-intensity guerrilla warfare which has no solution, and there's no proper retaliation. They're, 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 they're gonna kill till the end. Um, the, probably the most infamous battle that takes place during the fighting, a lot of death, uh, no, clear, any, no clear results, kind of like picture the Americans in Afghanistan or, or Iraq for that matter. Uh, they're there, but what are they doing there, and are they doing anything, and it's just, it's just getting worse. 
um, was the situation. But the most infamous battle that one hears about till, um, in this instance, instance, Christians massacred Palestinian refugees in the refugee camps. Remember, the, the Palestinians were languishing in refugee camps still all around, and they still are around the world. Uh, in this case, Sabra and Shatila. You've ever heard the term Sabra, Sabra and Shatila? Okay, that's fine, but you should be aware you're reflecting your ignorance. Many people who understand basics of Israel's history knows what knows Sabra and Shatila. Shatila, it's used um, often on the left wing as a uh, condemnation of Israel. Um, anyway, the massacre took place. It was true. It was... It was committed by Arab Christians against Palestinians. The problem is, is Israelis, led by Ariel Sharon, looked on and they didn't intervene and therefore were blamed. How much at fault they were, they didn't actually do the killing, uh, did they give the thumbs up, that's debated, um, but it's used in, and, and Ariel Sharon went to his grave uh, with Sabra and Shatila being very much brandishing him. He was, among other things, um, he was not permitted to hold public office or he was limited in his ability to hold public office. It didn't really stop him. Eventually he got around that. He became prime minister. Um, but um, but he, was, he was weakened by this. Israel um, remained in Lebanon. Do you know how long? From 1982? They were stuck there, kind of like Israel's Vietnam or Korea or America's Afghanistan, for that matter. Um, they were there from 1982 for 18 years till 2000. And it was the same kind of no results, only, un, only heartbreak, kidnapped soldiers, and, and all kinds of terrible PR. It made Israel, Israel, it made Israel look terrible. People died. There was, there was nothing good that came from it. And um, in the end, Israel, you know, under Ehud Barak, Israel, this is Barack's time to, he's going to be Mr. Peaceman, so he, that's when he's negotiating with Syria, and he wants to make a quick settlement with the Palestinians, and he decides to unilaterally, we're just going to withdraw our forces from Lebanon after, after 18 years, and so he does, and the, the Hezbollah, the, uh, the Arab part, the Muslim party up in Syria, um, they decided to have fun with this, and so they chased the Israeli soldiers, so you got all this on video, and you see the Israeli soldiers really, literally running away, uh, terrified for their lives from the Arabs, and the Arabs love that footage. It was a big insult to uh, Israel honor, um, very humiliating. In the end, Syria, Lebanon's a very weak country today. You don't hear about it in the news, you don't hear about it as a major belligerent uh, force against Israel, even though it's on Israel's northern border, because it's, a, it's, it's effectively a puppet state of Syria, uh, which is fairly um, kind of sobering when you consider that Syria today is uh, imploding. Is, and, and who will be who will lead Syria? Uh, the, the present the present king, his demise is predicted. He may not fall quite so soon. He just spoke today. He wouldn't say. First time in like they said this is one of the first public things. He said just because we're losing battles doesn't mean we're losing the war. So he says it's over. It means it's over. Okay, so who knows what it means? But um, yeah, not the, things are not stable in Israel's, in Israel's uh, corner of the world. And of course, we understand this, we look at this with biblical perspective and understand that everything that happens in the world happens because of Kalal Yisrael. If we were to clean our act up, then much of this would, much of the problems would subside on all sides of us. Um, I think when you learn, I, for me, I learn about these things, I follow these events because it, just, it strengthens my amuna. I see that, the, I see like the promises of the Klala of Akadosh Baruch bringing us enemies from all around, creating impossible situations without any, any foreseeable solution. That's kind of the situation we're in, and the more you study it, the more you recognize the hand of God. <coughs> um, of course, Hezbollah is mobilized to attack Israel, and I'm not done with the, with the Northern Front. They will, uh, and, and we'll get to that soon enough. 
Um, the first intifada, this already gets me when I'm already a young man, um, uh, starts officially, breaks out officially in 1987. Uh, that was the end of my junior year abroad at Hebrew University. Oh, you were here. Yeah, I was here when it broke out. Um, it lasts officially, again, dates are a little bit obscure, but let's say from 18, 1987 to 1991, um, it culminates in what's called the Madrid Conference that leads to the 1993 Oslo Accords, but I'm ahead of myself. Um, the, what is the intifada? Intifada means violent uprising. The Arabs started realizing increasingly that violence was their friend, that they could accomplish, they could get great gains, few losses by being violent. And the first intifada then is marked by um, low level, deliberately low level violence that invites harsh retaliation on, the Israel's, on Israel's part to further their PR campaign that they're the small David against the Israeli Goliath. Uh, and it works like a charm, and they managed to do a lot of destruction. And since, as far in, in their in their um, cultural code, Arab life is cheap. Anyway, they go to a heaven and get a hundred virgins upon their death. So the idea of suicide dying, suicide bombers have not yet emerged as as the du jour kind of uh, approach. But the idea of risking life and potentially dying was was glamorized, especially for young kids who like adventure. Um, and so they used stone throwing. Uh, and they use Molotov cocktails, but a lot of stone throwing. I remember this driving on the streets. You know, the headline would read, "Child throws stones," followed by uh, uh, "shot by Israeli soldiers." What you don't always get is, you know, the stones can kill. Stones are also projectiles, and uh, it's not. You know, you picture like in the car. I guess the character you picture a kid like chucking a, th a stone. Meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, met with an Israeli with an Uzi. A machine gun or something, you know, with a machine gun gunning him down. It wasn't quite like that. Um, in any case, that's the first intifada. Sahal indeed responded by breaking bones. They did fire live ammunition. They also fired uh, other kinds of ammunition. Um, the idea of Israel being criticized by using excessive force is a theme that emerges around this time with the first intifada and is a major theme in all subsequent conflicts, including last summer but not just last summer, where the other side deliberately starts up, goads Israel into battle, and then Israel is condemned around the world as the Nazis for overreacting, um, right? Technically, it's true, but the Arabs manipulate this to curry favor in the international community. Um, they'll eventually realize the best way to do this is the most cynical example of, um, of, this, of this use of this approach is what the Arabs would call using, or actually we don't, they don't call it that, so we, we call it what they use, what they call human shields, where they'll deliberately bus whole groups of school children um, to hospitals, or they'll actually, more likely, they'll plan their attacks, they'll shoot their missiles from schools or from, um, from, from, from mosques, and then when Israelis retaliate to the center where the, the munitions are coming, and school children are killed in the process, the headlines read, Israel committing genocide, killing innocent children. In other words, they'll use the children or the old people, whoever, whoever's convenient, um, as, as what they call human shields. Um, you should also be aware with the Intifada, the um, Arabs will be increasingly against one another and um, accusations of being collaborators with Israel followed often by lynches of Arabs against Arabs will, will be increasingly dynamic which means that developing any mutual coexistence, peaceful coexistence, any kind of um, alliance building is almost impossible. There, uh, even if there are Arabs who are neutral or 
or let's say sympathetic to the Israeli uh, position, for them to assert themselves in any way it is, it would be to um, risk their own lives. Uh, and, so, and, and so the situation becomes increasingly intractable. And I, this is what I'm interested in this topic. And my major thesis of today, I really not, I don't mean, I hope I'm not inundating with too much detail, but my major purpose is to create a sense of hopelessness and that you should all walk out nice and depressed. But no, no, but really, to, sh- to, to give you the sense of, this is just so bizarre. Like, the, the, they can't even film this in a movie to make it sound more bizarre. The, the truth is stranger than fiction. At, at, you know, the, the situation is so intractable, defying any rational thinking that, it seems to me that Baruch Hu's, uh, you know, fingerprints, as it were, are, are all over this and are meant to be drawing us back and closer to him. I'm not at the Oslo Accords. That's coming, that's coming uh, in a few minutes. But first, um, the next major episode, this you do know about, in early 1991, I got engaged. Um, but that's irrelevant. The, uh, but um, when I came back uh, to the country, I got engaged. I had to go for my first Wexner conference, then I flew back. Um, my parents are wonderful, uh, the most supportive, loving people in the world. Um, they came and met me on the East Coast. I was in yeshiva. I took a short break to go to this Wexner conference, and I was flying back knowingly into the, uh, knowing that the Saddam had his Scud missiles pointed at Jerusalem. Um, but, you know. I'm Israel's there. I'm not going to abandon. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to go to the entire area. It's Israel to do my whatever little part I can do. I understand the Torah is protective. Um, and so the, uh, my parents didn't say a word. They know better. They didn't try to talk me out of returning or anything like that. The only thing that betrayed my mother was as we hugged the last goodbye, she trembled. But other than that, didn't say a word. Um, we, we came back. And I remember when the first, I remember the first sirens. The sirens are scary. You've heard some of them? Uh, scary things. And I remember also the first night I was living with a family. It was the year before I got married. Uh, and they had created a sealed room. Everybody's supposed to go to their sealed, calmly go proceed to your sealed room, put gas mask on. Uh, they look really funny, those gas masks. Um, and you're supposed to apply to all the windows um, a whole, uh, it was a, like the, the procedure, you had to put plastic sheets up and duct tape and everything like that. And I got into the room and the family I was staying with, well, what lovely people, totally panicked and hysterical. and. Um, I went around the room and I saw that they had barely, like everything they, were, they had done was half-baked. The, the um, duct tape was half on the windows. And I thought, this is probably not so good, but I didn't want to alarm them or anything, so I just quickly went around the room and you know, quickly like, put back up the tape and tried to seal everything. And anyway, uh, the Gulf War. Uh, the Gulf War in, in, in Iraq in early 1991 um, was really a war that Israel uncharacteristically stayed out of. It was a war between the Gulf, the Western forces, against Saddam Hussein. Uh, for their part, Iraq struck, what's that? It's the funniest part of how it started. It was a strange war. That, six weeks, that, six weeks. That Iraq, out of everybody, attacked Israel, and threatened Israel. Right, right, Israel did nothing, and, and, and Iraq attacked and, and um, deployed Scud missiles against Israel throughout the six weeks of fighting. The idea was they were trying to draw Israel into fighting, and Israel didn't bite the bait. Uh, again, very much against the, the, their, their usual behavior. The, um, as the missiles fall, local Arabs all over the country stood on the rooftops cheering. It was a, I mean, you look at it and you think they're deluded, they're, 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 they're crazy because don't they realize the missiles could fall on them too? But again, the, the notion of their lives being valuable or human life being valuable better that the Israelis get bombed. If we go down to it, so be it. 
seems to be the uh, seems to be the mentality. There's a there's a photo. Uh, it's actually anti-Israel propaganda, but it has it was very very big. It was on Newsweek. Yeah. It had Netanyahu like looking at and like the Arabs and punching a small baby. Oi. And like saying like he's using doctored and photoshopped. No, it's a cartoon. It's, it's a cartoon. cartoon. I see. Cartoon, okay, fine. But it's the same thing. Where, same idea. Uh, Listen, uh, I, I should say that that was a phenomenon. It wasn't all local Arabs. I don't mean to. I mean there, there are peaceful Arabs, but I, I have to say, you know, that they, they, they're they're forced to, to stay quiet but under he, these but circumstances. King Hussein was like trying to attack. Right, right. The Israelis here were not were not in the offensive for sure. Um, a total of how many missiles fell? Oh, this is well, so significant. You want to talk about Yad Hashem? Thirty-nine. Thirty-nine. Lamites Makus. Our our, our Masechta this year. Lamites uh, writes thirty-nine fell. Talk about a warning, spiritual warning. If you feel like learning it or, re- or reading into it, um, many of these missiles fell in heavily populated areas. How many deaths were caused directly by missiles? Zero. One. One death directly from a missile. Um, it, to be fair, dozens died from heart failure or misuse of gas masks, related secondary causes, but not from missiles themselves. They might have died anyway, right? But just going running to the safe room could have killed you too. But in terms of the missile attacks, um, well, I'm going to explain to you just how extraordinary that that was. Uh, against all odds, um, one death. Um, just to paint a contrast, in one simple Scud missile attack of on, an, on a U.S. Army barrack in Saudi Arabia. One Scud missile fell, and ten United States soldiers were killed. And that was in the middle of a desert. And here, talking about heavily populated areas, one Israeli killed. The um, here's here are a couple of eyewitness descriptions. There was a Russian woman who uh, reports to the newspapers follow, follows after the first attack. Here's what she said: Many of the people in the poorer houses of the neighborhood had not bothered to prepare a sealed room. So when the siren went off. We all rushed to the nearby public bond shelter. People were saying to Hillam over the sounds of crying babies. And then came the explosion. Everything came crashing down around us. The shelter had taken a direct hit by a missile carrying 550 pounds of explosives. There was the smell of burning sulfur. A thick cloud of dust filled the room. Some people were actually thrown into the air. Others had thrown themselves down to the ground. Many were screaming wildly. When the commotion subsided, when all the noise settled and the dust began to clear, people were frozen in shock and, and they slowly began to get up and look around. Everyone was totally astonished to see that not one of the 200 people was injured. Coincidence? Um, another account from the secular Yediot Achronot from June, January 20th, 1999. Uh, an older woman is writing clearly. She says, when the siren sounded at about 2 a.m., Mayor and his brothers came to me, her neighbors clearly, came to me and asked me not to stay at my home alone. I guess they figured an old lady like me couldn't take care of herself in the middle of the night. Uh, we left uh, A few seconds later, just after we left my house and just before we reached their house, the missile fell in the alley right between my house and theirs, totally destroying both houses. Um, if one person manages to escape death, we would say, well, that's lucky. Um, when hundreds walk away, it seems that they've defied all laws of probability. 1993. 
Um, I mentioned that the, these started were in Madrid. It was a whole process and eventually led to Oslo. The Oslo Accords were signed. They're significant to know about. They're defunct today. But this was the first time that there was a, a what they call a floor, uh, ground plan for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, it, uh, the most significant uh, effect of the Oslo Accords that are indeed in effect till today was the creation of an official entity called the Palestinian Authority. There was no legit, uh, prior to that it was just the illegal terrorist organization, the PLO. Now you have the Palestinian Authority, so Arafat is transformed from a, an, uh, 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 you know, a guerrilla warrior, a terrorist, to now being a statesman, a diplomat. Right, and who now heads uh, at least what could be at one point an actual independent autonomous state. Um, that's the big That's the big act. Most they, they um, tried to spell out a lot of uh, what they did was they put the easy issues on the table. They spelled out a lot of the easier, um, less contentious issues. They left four or five of the central issues like refugee status. You let all the millions of people claiming to be Palestinians back into this land and the demographic time bomb, um, Jerusalem and other hot issues. They said those will wait for seven years in the final status negotiations. Those were never, those, they didn't have those ever. But we'll be on the road to gradually building trust from both sides and we'll make these accords. Um, they stalled almost immediately. Today they're disregarded by both sides. Both claim that the other ones lied and didn't keep their end of the bargain, so why should we? Um, both statements are true. Both sides indeed did lie and didn't keep their side of the bargain. Uh, you pick your side if you want. Um, right? It also, not only did it cause the, um, the greatly divided, uh, excuse me, the, um, the, the Palestinian Authority, it actually chopped up and carved up the area of the West Bank and made it, as it is today, trickier to get around. So that um, I've described to you leading tours. We can go to Shiloh by way of an Israeli bus, but in order to go to Shechem, which I have ambition to do maybe in a few weeks, um, we'll see if, I'm, if I can pull it off. Um, you have to you have to wait once, maybe every month, every couple months, for army escort to go into deeply Palestinian area because it's one of those areas, this area B, C, and Olive, Bet, and Gimel, and this is designated as long-term Palestinian territory. So, um, so this has this has geographical significance. Um, that's felt till today. 1994. Israel and Jordan signed the most meaningful peace treaty. It was kind of reinforcing what had um, quietly existed between the two governments. Anyway, I've mentioned this before, Jordan um, needs Israel for mostly for its water resources and scientific um, know-how. Uh, you're talking about a landlocked state that deeply, desperately needs the water for its uh, small population. And um, it's never been Israel's strongest foe. The longest border that Israel has is with Jordan. It's also the safest, most quiet, quietest of the borders, all connected. Um, its citizens are mostly Palestinian, and the citizens are mainly hostile to Israel. The government, though, needs Israel on some level, and it remains to be seen how stable that situation is. Um, last point for today, after the Oslo Accords failed to produce any lasting peace, in the year 2000, in frustration when Barak's schemes all failed and um, the, as some people, uh, people on the left uh, phrased it in 2000, the left collapsed and the, and the prospects of an immediate peace solution seemed to uh, go down with it, um, a, a second intifada broke out. People usually date the second intifada from 2000 and 2005, although others claim it never really stopped. 
That means increasing violence, violent means such as suicide bombing now becomes part of the landscape. Um, tomorrow, Bezras Hashem, I have a significant, I think fairly original, uh, we're going to talk about terrorism and how it's shaped much of um, the, the nature of this country and actually the world's mentality um, and particularly how it impacts the Jewish people. We'll do other things too. We're going to continue. I, I'm, I'm still in the middle of updating us, getting, bringing us up to date in terms of um, uh, the developments leading till today in Israel, where Israel finds itself with its neighbors and, and various enemies and friends and such. So, to be continued.